Look, I'm all for wishing people a Merry Christmas or even a Happy Holiday season, but my frustration comes in with people who are demanding that Christ be put back into Christmas because Christmas was never about Christ in the first place. And what we're experiencing now in America is some very well-intentioned people aggressively fighting to put Christ back into a season that was never really his from even day one. This is the Heath in Pursuit podcast with Heath Hollinsby. Each week we'll have a conversation with various folks who are actively engaged in the pursuit of truth. This is a show where anything can be discussed, and probably will. A podcast for the seekers, the dreamers, the restless, the hurt, and the broken. This is a podcast for you. Welcome to Heath in Pursuit. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. I am Heath Hollinsby. And uh, today we're going to talk about something that is going to upset people and frustrate them. But uh, the truth will set you free. I believe that to be a true comment. And um, we're talking about Christmas and Christmas and the birth of Jesus and the traditions we celebrate and how often we think that we know where they all come from or subscribe to different meanings that have been placed on certain objects. And so I said, why don't I do a little bit of a deep dive on the birth of Jesus, and we'll kind of see what happens. Now, I want to clarify from the beginning that I am not a Scrooge. In fact, I'm recording this in a house that has a tree decorated. We've got the elf on a shelf, who we call Hunter here. There's stockings over our fireplace. I've drank tons of eggnog this season. We have lights up outside. We play into the traditions as well, but I thought it would be really important to clarify that I'm not just here to deconstruct Christmas. I'm here to point to some different things that would be helpful for people to consider, I think, this holiday season, especially people who tend to think that they know what Christmas exactly is. And so... Uh, came from a conversation I had with a friend who I just kept seeing on social media things like putting Jesus back in, into the season, right? Jesus is the reason for the season, or it's time to put Christ back into Christmas. And these are really good people who are saying these things, and they say them honestly, and I think very earnestly, if I'm being truthful. But today I want to talk about how the dark roots of this Christmas season came to be, because Christ was really never in Christmas. In fact, when you celebrate Christmas by eating too much or drinking too much or going crazy at your holiday office party or spending way too much money on Cyber Monday on gifts that are going to be broken in a few weeks, that is actually closer to the real spirit of Christmas than Jesus's birth. Let's talk about dates, and we're going to go fast today, and we're going to go through a lot of content, and it'll feel at times bouncing around, but my hope is that I can tie it all up in a bow towards the end. Okay, so... When we look at the year, even, that Christmas was intended to be celebrated, there's some discrepancies. So the gospel appears to be unsure when you take Matthew and you take Luke, because they put them at two different time periods. Matthew tells us that Herod the Great was on the throne when Jesus was born, and then he goes on to narrate Herod's massacre of all the innocent babies. But Luke, on the other hand, takes Christ's birth and times it to coincide with the Roman census. Now, the discrepancy is that Herod died in 4 BC, before Christ, uh, and Governor Quirinius carried out his census of Judea in AD 6. Um, and so we're already off by about a decade here at this point. We're not totally certain on the year, but there was a Scythian monk named Dionysius Exegus 
who did his best to determine the year of Jesus' birth. And he had a, a calculation in how he tried to defend it. And he said, in the Roman pre-Christian era, years were actually counted from a time called Ab Urbe Candida, which is the founding of the city of Rome. So it's the founding of the city. So 1 AUC, Ab Urbe Candida, signifies the year that Rome was founded. And like 5 AUC would signify the fifth year of Rome's reign and on and on and on. So Dionysius received this tradition about a Roman emperor, Augustus, reigning 43 years. And that emperor, Augustus, was followed by Emperor Tiberius. Well, in Luke 3, it indicates that when Jesus was 30 years old, it was the 15th year of Tiberius' reign. So if Jesus was 30 years old in Tiberius' reign, then he lived 15 years under Augustus, placing Jesus' birth in Augustus' 28th year of reign. But Augustus took power in 27 B.C., Therefore, Dionysius put Jesus' birth in 1 AD. However, Luke 1 places Jesus' birth in the days of Herod, and Herod died in 4 BC, four years before the year in which Dionysius places Jesus' birth. So we're already a bit confused on what year this is taking place. Another thing that's really confusing is that in early Christianity, birthdays just weren't celebrated. Easter was always the main holiday, Often even the birth of Jesus wasn't even acknowledged because church fathers had this way of thinking about celebrating birthdays as pagan customs when saints and martyrs would be honored on the days of their martyrdom, their true birthdays, into their kingdom life, into their eternal life. So celebrating birthdays in the first place was just not something that was ever really done because it was always the day of death that was the primary focus of the actual birth into their eternal life. Another thing that we should consider is the time of year in which Jesus is claimed to be born. We're pretty certain December 25th is not the birthday of Jesus, and one of the ways that we know that is from Luke 2 verse 8, where it explains that when Christ was born, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field watching their flock by night. Note that they were abiding in the field. They were living there. They spent time there. They were sleeping outside. This never happened in December. Even Ezra 10 and Song of Solomon 2 show that winter was a really rainy season and shepherds couldn't stay out in the cold open fields all night long. Now, it was custom among Jews to send their sheep out into the deserts around Passover time, so like April, and bring them home at the commencement of the first rain. Now, the first rains began to fall in early to mid-fall is kind of where they would typically happen. And we find that sheep were kept out in the open country during the whole summer. And because these shepherds had not yet brought home their flocks, we're probably talking about more the October time frame, because the 25th of December, there were no shepherds sleeping outside in the winter, and the flocks were already back home. So we can even look at December as being an incorrect time of year for Jesus to have been born. Now, the 25th of December was probably selected, most historians would argue or suggest, that it was because it coincided with an idolatrous pagan holiday called Saturnalia. Now, it's important to note that around the world, even centuries before the arrival of Jesus, Europeans would celebrate light and birth in the darkest days of winter, because many people were rejoicing that the worst of winter was behind them. They could look forward to better days, to longer days, to sunnier days, once that winter solstice took place. It was a movement towards bright and light and warmth again. But when Christianity became the official religion around 300 AD under Constantine in Rome, 
there was an attempt to fix this date. Now, some would argue that it was a really, really clever move by politicians near Constantine or like part of his cabinet to adopt the pagan midwinter festival as the alleged birth date of Jesus. By doing that, they would throw in a couple pagan goodies to make their takeover of this holiday a bit more easy to swallow. And so by holding Christmas at the same exact time as this winter solstice festival, church leaders increased the chances that Christmas would be celebrated more globally. And so many have speculated that choosing this date was very intentional as a political move by weakening the established pagan celebrations. One of the other things that was really fascinating was that many Christian writers in early Roman history would take December 25th and would make the connection between the rebirth of the sun, S-U-N, and the birth of the sun, S-O-N. So there's some long-range tactical planning in trying to subvert the pagan holiday system and impose Christianity on top of it. Early on, Christmas was actually called the Feast of the Nativity, and it actually spread fairly quickly. By the end of AD 432, Egypt was already celebrating, England was celebrating by the end of the 6th century, and by the end of the 8th century, this celebration of Christmas has spread all the way to even Scandinavia. And it was a perfect time of year for celebrating in most of Europe, actually, because the end of the year is when all the cattle were slaughtered, so they would not have to be fed during the winter. And so for most people, it was actually the only time of the year where they had a supply of fresh meat, and most of the wine and beer that were fermenting all year long were finally ready for drinking. So it was really great time to celebrate at the end of this winter. We got all the meat, our, our beer's ready, our wine's ready. We're celebrating this, the sun that is to come, the long-awaited warmth of the actual S-U-N, and so the mudding of the waters begins. And these parties were not just like a day off of work. Something that was kind of fascinating is like in Scandinavia, the Norse celebrated this holiday Yule, from like Yuletide, from December 21st until January. So they recognized this was a week-long 10-day-long, 12-day-long party. And what they would do is they'd send the fathers and the sons to go collect really large logs from the forest. They'd bring them back and set them on fire, and they would party until the logs burned out. The Norse believed, actually, that from each spark of that fire over the 12 years, that that spark represented a new pig or a cow that would be born during the coming year. Okay, so back to Saturnalia. The Roman god Saturn, in whose like honor this whole festival was even staged, was not like a benevolent Santa or a kind Christ baby figure. Ancient astrologers actually would say that being born under the sign of Saturn was terrible news. He devoured his own children. I mean, it was he was an awful, awful god and almost impossible to appease. Interestingly enough, historical accounts really differ on whether Saturnalia was a celebration that included tons of charity or debauchery. Because there's some accounts that talk about like the rich paying rent for the poor, masters and slaves exchanging clothes, and so on and so forth. But most of the historians that I've researched would say that this holiday was actually more about debauchery than anything. In fact, the word Saturnalia became synonymous with immorality and carousing. To modernize, some Saturnalia customs came across as like hedonistic perversions of Christmas traditions. So for instance, people would go naked singing from house to house. They'd eat too much. They'd drink too much. They would eat baked goods that were shaped like people. They'd exchange foul and immoral gifts. 
And uh, Christians have often redeemed or attempted to redeem portions of this celebration, but the historic roots of it still do remain fairly debaucherous. People would wear a cap of freedom called the pulium, which was usually worn by slaves who had been awarded their freedom to symbolize that they were free during Saturnalia. So you had the sleeping caps was kind of a play off of the pulium. There was an ancient Greek writer and poet named Lucian, and he would describe uh, Saturnalia as a very foul festival. He would say there's human sacrifice. He talks about the widespread drunkenness, the naked singing. There was rape. There was other sexual license. And there was this consuming of human-shaped biscuits. And in fact, during the Christmas season, some of these uh, human-shaped biscuits actually show up in some English and German bakeries. They still are participating in that. So nobody worked during Saturnalia. Courts were closed. Schools were closed. Businesses stopped. People spent their time gambling and feasting and hanging out and giving gifts. And during Saturnalia, all social rules would go out the window. This meant that slaves got a chance to participate in the festivities and even received gifts from their masters. Or there was even often that the slaves would be sat at the head of the table and the masters would serve them for the celebration. One of my favorite parts of Saturnalia was this mischief maker title. It would actually be a job ascribed to one of the people in the house. And the job was called the Saturnaliscus Princeps, which is the Lord of Misrule. And that is like the coolest title ever. And a good Lord of Misrule would spend an entire week insulting guests, name-calling, making fun of them. They'd wear crazy clothing like jesters. They would chase people around the house, tormenting them. They would plan scandalous party entertainment. Uh, And this was chosen by fate. So a small coin would be hidden in a cake served at the beginning of the festivities. And whoever found this object in his cake, if they didn't break a tooth or something, would become this Lord of Misrule. If you're from New Orleans or have just spent a lot of time on Bourbon Street, it actually might sound familiar because there's a tradition in the Mardi Gras season of hiding tiny baby figurines inside of King Cakes, and that's a playoff of this Saturnalia festival. And these feasts were out of control. Like, think about the weirdest, most zany, wild, out-of-control holiday party you've ever been to, and then multiply it by 10. Everything went and anything went, and it was a wild time. Now I want to get into some of the customs that we know maybe are more familiar with. So hopefully I've done a job of saying we get the year wrong, we get the date wrong. Uh, We're basing it, I'm showing how Constantine is adopting Christianity as the uh, authoritative religion and how he's tying in Christianity with Saturnalia in an attempt to take over the celebrations. So now I'm going to start pointing out things we might be familiar with that actually come from different pagan roots as well. Let's start with the whole mother and child, round and virgin mother and child aspect of Christmas. Semiramis, who was a legendary Lydian and Babylonian wife of Annas and Ninus, she actually succeeded the throne in Assyria around 850 BC. She became the queen of heaven, and Nimrod, under various names, became the divine son of heaven. Throughout generations in this idolatrous worship, Nimrod became the false messiah son of Baal, the sun god. So in this Babylon system, the mother and child, Semiramis and Nimrod reborn, became chief objects of worship. And the worship of mother and child spread all over the world. And this was almost a thousand years before the birth of Christ. In Egypt, it was Isis and Osiris. Asia had Cybele and Dioheus. In Rome, it was Fortuna and Jupiter Pure. And even in Greece and China, Japan, Tibet, all around the world, there was this counterpart of the Madonna long before the birth of Christ. 
So during the 4th and 5th centuries, when people in the Roman world were starting to accept this new popular Christianity by the hundreds of thousands, they wanted to bring their old customs and beliefs along with them. But they wanted to, more than that, just cloak them in more Christian names, more Christian-sounding names even. So the Madonna, the mother and child idea, became really popularized, especially at Christmas time. Every Christmas season, you'll hear Silent Night, Holy Night with its familiar mother and child theme. But for those of us who have been born in Christendom, we would have been taught to revere these very special relationships for our entire life as something holy or sacred. But we never really questioned where they came from, whether they came from the Bible or from some other idolatry and culture. And it appears that that cultural idolatry was done again thousands of years before the birth of Christ. Okay, let's talk about the wise men. So Jesus, according to Matthew 2, was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, and that magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they've been called magi, kings, wise men, but what were they really? Most historians would actually consider them more like a king advisors. So they would read stars, they'd have wisdom-seeking work as part of their job title, but they weren't really kings. They were advisors and representatives of the king. Some early traditions in the church say that there were 12 of them. And today we choose to honor three because there were the three significant gifts that were offered. And it also looks better on a Hallmark card than trying to jam another 12 wise men into it. Something fascinating about them is that we often hear that they rode camels. And this is just not true. When you watch movies from this time period, actors are always on camels. But people in Arabia typically rode Arabian horses, especially if they were advisors to the king. Camels were more like pack animals, and they were like the cargo carriers. But these wealthy travelers, who were obviously wealthy as the king's representatives, would be used to appreciating a more comfortable type of transportation. Another thing fascinating about them is that this mysterious star that they followed. Matthew never says that they followed a star. He says they saw a star. And as astrologists, or people who were used to reading the stars, they would make sense of that. It would give them a bearing for direction. And so these men were astrologers. And the star was an astronomical sign that they saw that signified the prophecy of the Jewish king. That doesn't mean necessarily that the star led them from Arabia to Jesus. Something that's fascinating too is that these men traveled from the east. The text even says that they came from the east, which actually makes a lot of sense because based off the nature of their gifts and Old Testament prophecy, it means that they likely came from like the Arabian kingdom of Sheba. Now, Arabia was known for its really luxurious gold mines, its vast wealth, and then it had an, like a, a massive amount of Boswellian and Kamafora trees, which is where frankincense and myrrh come from. All right, let's talk, uh, I don't know, let's talk Christmas trees and wreaths. Each year, 30 to 35 million real Christmas trees are sold in the U.S. alone. Right now, there's about 21,000 Christmas tree growers in the U.S., and trees typically grow for about 15 years before they're sold. We can't talk about Christmas without involving the Christmas tree. So the modern Christmas tree that we're familiar with now originated from Germany. But the Germans got it from the Romans, and the Romans got it from the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians got it from the Egyptians. There was an old Babylonish fable told of an evergreen tree which sprang out of a dead tree stump. The old stump symbolized the death of Nimrod, and the new evergreen tree symbolized that Nimrod had come to life again in Tammuz. Among the Druids, the oak was sacred, and among the Egyptians, it was the palm. In Rome, 
Remember Constantine, Rome, it was the fir. And during Saturnalia, the fir was decorated with berries and looked a lot like most people's modern Christmas trees. But like I said, the Christmas tree is originally from Egypt, and it dates way back to before the birth of Christ. The first indoor Christmas trees that are decorated now appeared as early as 1605 in Strasbourg, France. But it really didn't catch on as a tradition until the late 1700s and even early 1800s. Indoor trees actually came with really sad events usually to the host home, since they'd be filled with candles to be lit on Christmas Eve. While it was a delightful and beautiful prospect, it was really dangerous because each candle had to be wired or tied to a branch and then closely monitored as it burned. The Advent wreath, often made of fir branches with four candles denoting the four Sundays of Advent season, it's actually even a more recent origin, especially in North America, because this custom really didn't begin until the 19th century, though it has its roots in 16th century customs. But back in the 1500s, it originally involved a fir wreath with 24 candles, the 24 days of Christmas, starting on December 1st. But the awkwardness of having so many candles on the wreath actually was like, we're not doing this anymore. Let's cut it down to four. And now most churches celebrate the four candles. And while you chalk it up to an ancient tradition, it's actually not even that long ago that we broke away from the 24 candles to make it a little bit more easy. So the Advent calendar gives you 24 openings, one to be opened each day beginning December 1st. And according to tradition, this calendar was actually created in the 19th century by a German housewife who was just getting sick and tired of constantly having to answer when Christmas would come to her kids. And so she made this Advent calendar. 1851, the first commercial calendars were printed in Germany, and that has led to the commercialization of the holiday of Advent calendars ever since then. All right, mistletoe. Okay, mistletoe was started by the Druids, who believed that it was an all-powerful healing item from the sacred oak tree. They were wrong, (laughs) because mistletoe is actually a parasitic plant that grows on trees, and it sends its roots really deep in the tree's bark and then starves the tree of nutrients as it fills itself up. It's actually a, a leech, in fact. So back to the festival of Saturnalia, the drunken orgy kind of wild world. The pagan custom was natural on a night that involved very much revelry done in the spirit of drunken orgies. Mistletoe was considered to have special powers of healing for those who reveled under it. And even in the Middle Ages, it was hung from ceilings or placed above stables and house doors to drive off evil spirits and to ensure fertility. So the origin of mistletoe, let's get somebody under the mistletoe that's already had too much to drink so that we can be debaucherous with them. All in a good night's fun. Okay, Christmas cards. Christmas cards started in 1844. That is not very long ago. There's an English artist named William Dobson who drew up some pictures in England for the use of the holiday season. They found local use there, and it soon spread to America. And in 1846, Colin Horsley saw the commercial potential of this growing tradition and started producing Christmas cards, which is now a $1 billion industry. Every year in America, about 4 billion Christmas cards are sent alone. I know there's been a lot of people, commentaries, preachers, that for years have taught, and still do, that Christmas has been taken over from its Christian roots and lost its true meaning to consumerism. But if anything, religion was grafted onto consumerism rather than consumerism grafted onto religion. The first Christmas cards, in fact, printed in the U.S. illustrated Santa Claus 
with a family opening gifts with a holiday message that says Pisa's Great Variety Store in the Temple of Fancy. The original Christmas card was nothing more than a commercial advertisement. In fact, a survey of more of 100,000 cards in circulation before 1890 shows that religious images like the nativity scene are really, really rare. There was almost none of them. The majority of them featured mistletoe, Christmas pudding, Santa, holly, Father Christmas, bells, robins, food, festivity, Christmas trees, blah, 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 thus rendering biblical or religious themes on holiday cards actually insignificant. Okay, so talking about, uh, let's see, we talked about trees and wreaths and Advent. Um, I think Santa Claus would be a fun one to move on to. What about the big man himself? Father Christmas, Saint Nick, Santa. Why do we hang out a stocking for him? Well, according to legend, Saint Nicholas heard about three sisters who were forced into a life of prostitution to earn enough money to eat. So he would toss three coins down their chimney to help him out, and they landed in the girls' stockings as they were drying on the hearth. Back in 1822, there was an Episcopal minister named Clement Clark Moore who wrote a Christmas poem called An Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas, which we now call Twas a Night Before Christmas. This poem depicted Santa Claus as a really jolly man who flies from home to home on a sled driven by reindeer to deliver toys. But it sounds a bit more like a really terrifying pagan god named Odin that was very popular in Germany. Germans were terrified of Odin because he made these nocturnal flights through the sky to observe his people, and then he would decide who would prosper and who would die. And because they were so terrified of him, most Germans would just stay inside. According to the Encyclopedia of World History article, Santa, Santa was actually a common name for Nimrod throughout Asia Minor. This was the same fire god who came down the chimneys of ancient pagans, and the same fire god to whom infants were burned and eaten in human sacrifice, among those who were once God's people. So both in Odin and Nimrod, you hear connections to Santa that are not nearly as beautiful and kind and sweet as we have seen this character play out to be in America. The magazine Harper's Weekly actually published what was thought to be the first illustration depicting modern Santa back in the 1860s. He actually wore green robes and had some associations with the green man of legend who ruled the woods and forests in different circles of belief. It's often said that Coca-Cola invented the Santa we know and love today, swapping out his traditional green clothing for the red of Coke's branding. And the company did debut ads featuring Father Christmas enjoying a Coke and a nice smile back in 1931. Uh, it actually came from a Swedish commercial artist that the Coca-Cola Corporation contracted with to create a Coke-drinking Santa. His name was Haddon Sundblom, and he modeled Santa off of his friend Lou Prentice because Lou had a cheerful, chubby face. The corporation insisted that Santa's fur trim suit be bright Coca-Cola red. And with a combination of the two, Santa Claus was born. He was kind of a Christian crusader, commercial idol, and pagan god all wrapped up into one. All right, Christians putting Christ back into Christmas. Uh, something we should say about that. Back in the early 17th century, in the early 17th century, actually 1645 to be exact, uh, there was a wave of religious reform that changed the way Christmas was celebrated in Europe. So you had Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan friends. They got to take over England, and they vowed to rid England of decadence. And as part of their effort, they canceled Christmas. By popular demand, Charles II restored it to the throne, and with him came the return of the popular holiday. The Pilgrims, who were the English separatists that came to America in 1620, 
were even more orthodox in their Puritan beliefs than Cromwell. And as a result, Christmas wasn't a holiday in early America. From 1659 to 1681, it was actually outlawed in the city of Boston, and anyone who was exhibiting the spirit of Christmas was fined. So if you really want to look at the war on Christmas, you've got to look to the Puritans because they're the ones that banned it. Finally, Christmas solidified its place back on June 26, 1870, when it was declared a federal holiday. So again, this is not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history and tradition that led us to where we are today. A lot of this stuff is so new within the last 200 years, but we've blindly accepted it. Now, the English author Charles Dickens created the classic holiday tale, A Christmas Carol. The story's message, which was the importance of charity and goodwill towards other humans, struck a really powerful chord in the U.S. and England and showed members of the Victorian society the benefits of really celebrating the holiday. In the early 1800s, the family was becoming less disciplined and more sensitive to the emotional needs of children. Christmas actually provided them with a day where they could lavish attention and gifts and time onto their children without appearing to spoil them. And as Americans began to embrace Christmas as a perfect family holiday, old customs came to light and then were unearthed. And so people looked toward recent immigrants and Catholics and Episcopalian churches to see how the day should be celebrated. And over the next hundred years or so, Americans built a Christmas tradition all their own that had many pieces from other customs, including decorating trees, sending holiday cards, and even gift giving. And though many families actually bought into the idea that they were celebrating Christmas how it had been done for centuries, Americans really just reinvented a holiday to fill the cultural needs of a growing nation. So when we think about consumerism, we have to dispute the presumption that this holiday was in the very beginning primarily or even exclusively observed by devout Christians because we have to be confronted with the fact that over only about the last 200 years has its real significance been displaced by the forces of secularism and consumerism. You see, commerce, it hovers like the ghost of Christmas present over the whole narrative of Christmas. The cultural importance of Christmas grew exponentially in the 20th century, largely because of consumerism, not in spite of it. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer offers a perfect illustration, because in 1939, in a way to provide a giveaway to children, the retail store Montgomery Ward printed 2.5 million copies of the narrative poem of Rudolph the Misfit Reindeer. Ten years later, May, who wrote the book, uh, his brother-in-law, Johnny Marks, added the music which Gene Autry sang. The song shot to number one in the charts. It sold millions and millions and millions of records in the process. And in the wink of an eye, a likable red-nosed reindeer who was a misfit was added to the pantheon of Christmas characters on the account of a really sharp marketing strategy by a department store. All right, so that is kind of where history and all our traditions come from. And my plea with us is that as we go into this holiday season... Let's stop being so offended that, that Christ is being defamed when things are changed from Merry Christmas to Happy Holidays. Because essentially, this was not a Christian holiday to begin with. I'll leave you on that note. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Heath in Pursuit podcast. We look forward to being back with you next week. For more information on the various works of Heath Hollandsby, please visit heathinpursuit.com.